Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Vanessa Osage, one of the bravest and most intrepid people I have ever met. Vanessa has dedicated her life to breaking down the barriers of stigma and shame and helping others to find a new order of loving accountability and restorative justice. We are calling this episode Truth Heals, Systemic Abuse and Institutional Reform. In it, Vanessa tells her story of reporting sexual abuse at one of our country's elite boarding schools, retribution, cover-up, engaging and then abandoning the legal system, attention in some of the nation's most respected newspapers and media, starting a nonprofit to serve others going through these kinds of issues, and writing her incredible memoir, Can't Stop the Sunrise, Adventures in Healing, Confronting Corruption, and the Journey to Institutional Reform. Joining us as co-host is Chloe Coppola, an advocate with us at Progressive Prison Ministries, who shares the story of her sexual abuse and institutional response while she was a student at her own prep school. Two courageous women telling their stories in intimate and powerful ways. So coming up, Truth Heals on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi folks, welcome to White Collar Week. We have an incredible show for you today. Um, at least I hope it's gonna be incredible because it's so moving and so raw that um, I'm from the outset a little concerned about the subject matter and about our ability to all hold it together. So I just wanna start with a, a, a little story uh, about myself and then I'll introduce my guests. Um, I was um, out of control and I did anything in life that I wanted to do when I thought I was a master of the universe. And what I learned was that life got better and I could enter a place of healing and love and self-love when I finally was willing to submit to authority. And for me, that authority was God. But in a very real sense, I had to submit to a lot of other authority. I had to submit to authority of the prison system. I had to submit to authority of, of a lot of people who um, chastised me for what I did and then ultimately have embraced me because of the life I've chosen since. And that's what resonated with me so much about Vanessa Osage's work, who's one of our guests here today. Uh, Vanessa is the uh, founder and director of uh, something called the Amends Project, and I'm going to let her talk about it. Um, certainly, a lot more than I can. But one of the, and our second um, guest is uh, Chloe Coppola, and Chloe is an advocate with our program with the Progressive uh, Prison Ministries, and uh, someone who uh, we love in our family, someone we've known for a long time. 
And uh, both of their stories are very are heartwarming. And what's resonated with me uh, most, because we had a pre-podcast conversation, and Chloe called out something that she read of Vanessa's, was that accountability is an act of love. And that's kind of ringing through me. It's stinging through me, actually. So uh, let me get without... Uh, any further comment, let me introduce uh, Vanessa and Chloe. Welcome to White Collar Week. Thank you, Seth. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, v- Vanessa, um, wh- why don't we start with you? Um, because you came um, into, our, into our lives uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we published a piece of yours called um, White Male Privilege Q&A which is some satire, a parody, really, um, but it's got a lot of uh, attention already. And I think that it speaks to some of the underlying issues of what you talk about, but it doesn't really capture the, 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 both the bigness and the very small personal nature of what you've gone through and um, what your project's about. So why don't we start there? Sure. Thank you. Um, I'm really excited to be with both of you. Really enjoying getting to know you as we explore. Um, So let's see, when you talk about the wide scale and the small scale of what I've been through, I'm happy to start at what is essentially the beginning, Mm -hmm. is that as a 16-year-old, I um, was a student at an elite boarding high school in Massachusetts. And unexpectedly, I had an early insight into the workings of corrupt systems. You know, and, and when we come to the world through the view of a child, it's a lot of trust. It's a lot of, you know, understanding right from wrong, believing that things make sense in a certain way. So I had this early insight into the workings of corruption. Um, and I think, you know, when I talk about the big scale, there's this, there's this phenomenon, right, that one person's story can seem like it's private to them or personal to them and unique. And there is truth in that. But often it reflects a larger truth of what's happening on like a systemic and societal level. And so really with the Amends Project, is a, it became a nonprofit officially in 2019. And in 2016, it actually started as a very personal intention. Um, I could do a quick, you know, highlight timeline of like that early insight into the workings of corruption to... To modern day. Yeah, I think that would be a great idea because, oh, yeah. because because there's there's an event that's at the core of this, and then other events that kind of um, that kind of bloomed out of it. So wh- wh- why don't we go back? Why don't we go back to that? Because I think we need to understand why you even started to focus on this. Definitely. So um, yeah, it's sweet to talk to East Coasters, right? Because I know you're in Connecticut, <laughs> and I I left the the East Coast about 25 years ago. So I live out in Washington State. Um, so as a 16-year-old, you know, it, became, it became clear that a male employee on our high school campus, he was essentially just preying on girls. You know, So he was preying on my friends, preying on me. So a friend confided, you know, we'd each kind of seen these behaviors that we slowly put together were, were off. For some people, the process wasn't as slow, right? So this man had been abusing girls. Um, for at least a decade. Hmm. So when a friend came to me and told me, you know, she confided in me because she knew I had gone through similar things. And this is kind of a crucial point 
the fact that she took the risk to go to someone who cared about her and my love for her as a friend, that's what galvanized this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so as a young person, I, you know, and still protective of the people I love. So she, she comes to me and says that, you know, these things were happening. So we, um, we meet and we talk, about, we actually sit down and write our feelings about what had happened. And then um, I wrote my, as if I was speaking to the man, you have no right to do this, how you're acting is wrong. And then we decide kind of spontaneously that we need to go down there and I'll read that to him, you know, what I wrote. So, um, so I, with my friend and then my boyfriend at the time, you know, was waiting outside with his baseball bat. <laughs> um, so we go and we, we do this confrontation, right? And at 16, I think like, okay, this is it. All we have to do is go down there and name it, stand up for our rights, stop this guy in his tracks, and that'll end it, right? So we, we go and it was, you know, nerve wracking. I'm reading it. My hands are shaking. Um, and so we do that. And then I totally believe that would, that would be it. Um, and then essentially what happens then is that that belief I had in like the system being trustworthy was eventually just shattered, you know? Um, and so when I asked what would happen, the answer was nothing. And we were, we were kind of tricked into this secret meeting, you know, no warning. Um, they said nothing was going to happen as a result. And then, um, I was living on campus, you know, and the man started stalking me in my dorm and I was scared, of course, you know, he's a maintenance person. He probably had keys to the whole place. And, um, so I went in again, I was like, look, we have to do something about this. Um, when you say you went, you went in, did you, you went mm -hmm. into administrators, you went up, you went up the ladder to people who were charged with your welfare. Yeah. Well, essentially, you know, those people heard about the confrontation. And then there was a, a note in both of our mailboxes come to the headmaster's office. So yeah, there's, there's the direct to the highest position, you know, so we should, we end up in the headmaster's office. And then, so when I, when we don't hear any follow-up about what's going to happen, it's back to the headmaster I go. And then when he's, you know, still on campus, it's back to the headmaster I go. Um, and I want to make a quick point so I don't forget it. And we can come back to this, but that moment confronting the child molester in his, you know, workshop. When we walked in, that man, you know, he seemed to recognize right away what was happening. He had no defense. He hung his head and he nodded and he agreed. And I want to just mark that for a second because what I understand about the process of recovery, he was very much primed for that to be a rock bottom moment. You know, in my perception, looking back, he was ready to have that accountability being held of like, okay, you've been out of control for a decade. And I just, I just want to give that a moment because I think like the failure of response not only failed, you know, me, my classmates, the families who continued to spend, you know, send children and money, it failed him an opportunity to start recovering from a disease. Um, anyway, so failure of response occurs. Then the next thing I heard, um, they, you know, they said they would do nothing, that he would stay. And if he did it again, you know, he might have to go. Um, <clears throat> and then I got called into the headmaster's office once more. And they informed me that there was no financial aid available for my return. Um, and I remember that to me was the really the impactful moment. And so I just released my book, you know, Can't Stop the Sunrise, um, Adventures in Healing, <laughs> Confronting Corruption, and the Journey to Institutional Reform. 
And I think when you read the story there, you recognize that's the moment where I talk about like the route between right and wrong was just severed, you know, and I felt like we were all floating, you know, it's very, even though I couldn't articulate it as a 16 year old, that was the impactful moment. That's when the world stopped making sense. Um, so that's all 1994 as a 16 year old for me, <clears throat> excuse me. And then I yeah, eventually, yeah, be, before you, before you go on, I, I, I think it's fascinating that you saw a moment for this perpetrator to recover. He'd hit his bottom, but institutionally, it wasn't in their best interest to allow that to happen. So they actually took the reins of people's lives in their hands because it served their interests. So at a moment, I'm, 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 I'm mirroring back to you. Yeah, go so, so what, at a moment when he could have gotten better, he could have healed where you could have healed, where you and your friend could have healed. Instead, the institution took over and decided that's not happening on our watch. We're, we're, we're protecting us. Is that about right? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a definitely a fair assessment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's worth giving that moment of like, you know, because if you're looking through just the one lens of what will this do to the school's reputation or endowment or what, it, you lose sight of like what was lost in terms of, yeah, recovery, you know, and <clears throat> further harms prevented and really about rebuilding trust, right? And I know this is a big collective evolution of growth and it's, it's a process unfolding. But when you think about the, how crucial it is for there to be trust in those boarding school communities, you know, there were a number of paths that could have been taken. Had they taken the high road and, you know, removed the man, fired him, called the police, had an assembly to say, look, you might notice that so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, and his wife are not on campus. We discovered this. Some of our students had the courage to stop this terrible thing. If anybody else has been harmed, you know, like there was such an opportunity <laughs> To like when you think about the trust that would have been built and the strength that would have enhanced that place, you know, I think those are losses that kind of need to be named. Um, so yeah. And, yeah, and that and that probably would have happened if it were not an incident that reflected badly on the school. Like for example, mm -hmm. if a if one of your classmates had gotten hit by a car, for example, mm -hmm. and and other students had witnessed it, there would have been some kind of crisis management. There would have been, all these things would have kicked into gear. Right. Mm -hmm. right? But, but because the, the school and its oversight was a player, it influenced, it, or at least it apparently influenced their, their decision-making. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating to imagine. Yeah, it, it's intriguing to me that you say that it reflected poorly on them. You know, that, and even that's always interesting to me, like, as I've done this work mm. and even working with adults, you know, over decades, it's like how we, how we regard our weak moments, I think plays out, you know, within our, ourselves, within our relationships, Like even, yeah, even that frame of like, this reflects poorly on us. I mean, of course it does. Someone hired the gentleman, you know, someone didn't background check. And so right like how are we going to regard and I, you know i make mistakes i do things that don't live up to my own standards how do i regard it 
Like, and what, how do I think? What, what would that background check have said? You know, I can't quite speak. Like, did he, he was in that position. I'm trying to think of from my own knowledge and research. You know, I mean, it, it invites the question, like, when did he begin abusing? You know, what I know is when I confronted him at 16, you know, and there was this buzz in my friend group, there was a woman who worked downtown and I think she was close to 10 years older than I at the time. Um, and she approached me to say, thank you for doing that. You know, he, he did those things to me when I was your age. You know, so I think in that decade, he would have still. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. It's like, we need to be willing to look at any moment. Somebody can veer off course. And I have to say too, I just, I really respect what you were speaking to about acknowledging that you were out of control, you know, and yeah, that we need each other to kind of scaffold each other to say like, Hey, I see you're off track here. And I think, yeah, to circle back that moment when I, my friend and I stood there, my boyfriend's waiting out back, you know, that would have been a, Hey, we see you mm-hmm. moment. And yeah. Well, well, the flip, the move where the victims become the victimizers mm. is, 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 a, is, is horrifying and strange. It, 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 it doesn't really make sense, but yet we see it every day because, because it, it's, a, it, it's a way to deflect responsibility for behavior. We see it in families. We see it in institutions. Oh, we I see it all the time. Okay. For a moment, I was going to ask you to say more. Do you mean when, when someone who has been harmed, then the human response around it is to consider them the doer of harm? Exactly. Yeah, there are many, you know, in my book, <laughs> I lay, there's a chapter called Tactics D Words. So it turns out in my experience and observation that a lot of the tactics used to avoid the truth of a situation start with the letter D. Mm. You know, denial, diversion, defamation, discrediting, you know, and I think all of that stuff i mean it's amazing how unconsciously skillful people can become at deflecting the heat of responsibility mm. you know mm. so I, I, yeah i agree there's there's something to that and i just think then it becomes our responsibility to kind of name those dance moves like okay there's there's a heat of a moment here where you're being held and being seen and like you were saying earlier chloe so beautifully that like holding accountable is actually that love you know like Mm. but and there's a heat to that and you have to kind of sweat through it to get to the transformation moment and when people start doing those moves of like well you and well what about this and well you don't know what you're talking you're like if we can name each of those moves and still just hold the person steady you know i think that's the the growth opportunity let me ask you one more question before we get to chloe um did you talk to your parents about all of this? Hmm. So at the time, I did not. And I believed that they didn't know. And so I lived on campus at the time, which was part of what made it so unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of fascinating, too. Is I, There's a lot of that I had to piece together um, retroactively. Or, yeah. Um, well, I mean, just to give one next little piece of the story... It's still a little bit, so real quick, it's still a little bit mysterious. There were no written records kept at the school of any of this, which obviously speaks to one of the D words, right? Mm. <laughs> what, dusting? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
what's intriguing to me is like, well, what kind of message of blame or pressure was, you know, phone calls were made. The headmaster made phone calls to both fathers, but we don't know what was said. You know, we don't know what kind of, I mean, one thing that surfaced in 2018 when there was a lot of activity, um, my friend who had also been involved in her mother had to request further to see records of what had happened. And the headmaster at the time, Steve Hahn, um, he put a little handwritten note. So this mother's like, hey, I'd like to see the report, you know, that was taken. And that was never offered, which I think is noteworthy. But on his giving her that, he wrote a little handlit, you know, a handwritten note, please handle it confidentially, which I just have to say is totally inappropriate. You know, it's a subtle message of like, keep this quiet now, you know? And to me, that's part of the systemic piece that I'm working to address now in 2020 is the whole, you know, the whole silencing and how pervasive that can be. So yeah, you know, it's still, it's, it's still foggy in a way. Um, well, but it's, I, part, it's part of this yeah. because the school stands in loco parentis, the parents sign off their rights to their children and the school gets to decide what's in the best interest of the children, not the parents, so long as they're there. It seems to be a strange dynamic that the parents in some ways become outsiders in their children's upbringing. No, I don't know the, the technical legalities. I mean, like I was saying, I can read that loophole that I discovered in my research. You know, I understand mandated reporter status, right? Every adult that works in the care of children is always considered a mandated reporter, sure. right? So I'm not, I'm not sure that any, anything explicit is signed by a parent, you know, granting more rights. But I think it is fair to say that um, there are instances where administrators or, you know, officials or school leaders have taken those liberties and mm. have been able to, you know, reflect a different set of priorities mm. as a result. So um, I, I think this is a good jumping off point. Um, to talk to Chloe about what her experience was, because um, Chloe, um, forgive me, but you were not a, a boarding student at the sporting school, right? You were you were a, a, a day student. Yeah, I was a day student. Um, I was around a lot of the time. We had a good day student program at my school, but um, yeah, I, I would go home at night. I was I spent the majority of my days at school, but um, yeah, I. My sophomore year of high school, which was 2015, I was just about to turn 15, I believe. Um, I was sexually assaulted by a boy in a grade above me. Um, and I didn't realize what had happened to me for a really long time. It was very confusing for me. I didn't quite understand the concept of rape. It was something I only saw in SVU and not something that could really happen to me. Um, but after a couple months, it, I realized what had happened and I kept it to myself for a really long time because I was embarrassed, confused, trying to sort through all the motions afterwards. And um, by my junior year, I was starting to talk to people about what had happened to me. He was still at the school. He was a senior. Um, it was a very tiny school, 300 people. So word gets around quick. Um, it was notified to the faculty was brought in to the office to have a meeting um, alongside my parents. And I, I just wasn't ready to talk about anything yet. I was, I was scared for what the 
backlash from the boy would be. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted the outcome to be even. Um, I was completely thrown off guard and just denied everything in the office outright. So it would just go away and I would deal with it on my own. Um, I ended up having a conversation with the guy afterwards. Um, it was news to him. I had uh, hearing this from the office and you know, I had a conversation with him. He took full accountability, um, admitted everything, apologized. And that was kind of what I wanted to get out of it. It wasn't like everything magically went back to normal, but that was kind of what I wanted out of the situation. Um, a year later, um, my senior year, he had graduated by then. Um, I was really feeling empowered by my story and starting to talk about it more openly with my friends. And, um, I was having a really difficult time still because, you know, I wasn't in therapy and my parents didn't know it was still non-existent trying only, only, uh, my closest friends really knew about the situation. Um, there was one day I was particularly really upset and, um, crying to my advisor who was a mandated reporter she had suspicions the whole time, but I, I said his name and she was required to talk, uh, talk to the school. Um, I went back to the office a year later and admitted that, you know, that conversation last year was, was true. Um, started therapy. Um, on my end, the school handled things as well as I could have asked for. Um, they didn't really push uh, for anything, but what it did do was give me this insight to other people's experience through the school. Like I said, really tiny school, um, where it gets around fast. So what happened was pretty amazing. Whereas a lot of girls in my grade started confiding in me and telling me about their experiences with, um, sexual harassment from teachers and, um, sexual assault from students and such. So I've, I've seen a lot of different perspectives just from being honest about my story. It's kind of been like a magnet of survivors kind of flocking to each other for solidarity and just clarity. Um, so I, I feel really lucky that a lot of people trusted in me and to hear their stories and experience really shaped how I viewed systematic problems of sexual abuse at boarding schools because it's a problem wherever you go. I mean, we've heard Vanessa's story from the nineties and it's still happening to this day. Chloe, what, what I don't understand, I guess, or what is confusing me hmm. is that now you're 15, 16 years old. <clears throat> and what you said was the, that, um, you, you weren't sure about the result that you wanted. Mm, yeah. But how could a 15 or 16 year old even understand what the, what, what the possibilities of the results were, what the right. responsibilities were? Um, it seems to me that you put yourself in the hands of people who are in charge or have your mm. welfare in charge. And all, as a child, all you should really know is that you have trust that the right things are going to happen, whatever those right things are. 
we we can't like we can't leave the the system of the system up to 16 year olds because you don't have enough perspective to understand what's possible right well i mean my understanding at the time like like i said i was watching a lot of svu at the time um but i i understood that the system whether it's the legal system or the school system in general is not set up to really assist survivors of sexual assault i was really afraid of you know because i had this previously consensual relationship with this guy and I didn't re- recognize until months after the fact that it happened and I, I had persisted with this relationship, it was going to be a really hard pitch to say that something bad had happened. Like if you picked apart all the evidence and looked at it in the nitty gritty, it looks like nothing had happened. Um, and I, I thought my only option was to pursue legal action or do nothing at all. Right. And, um, I I was more comfortable with not doing anything at all because at least then I had some kind of control over what was happening in my life. If if I pursued anything legally, I right I, I don't even know what that would look like today and I'm 22, but as a 16, 15 year old, I really had no idea what that would look like and I didn't want to talk about it either. I just I I I was barely figuring it out myself at the time. I didn't really know how to talk about it with anyone else without sounding confused or, you know, unsure of myself, which I was sure what happened, but I wasn't sure how to talk about it. So Vanessa, this is your opportunity to counsel Chloe. (laughs) Well, I'm just feeling so grateful, Chloe, that you could speak to all those different angles. I mean, it says so much that fairly recently, you know, I mean, we're not talking many decades, but that you can recall the, the thought process and just that you were already aware of the fact that you would have to defend the legitimacy of what you had gone through, that like yeah. you regard that system, you already have to get your like personal fight defense, which is very true and real, mm-hmm. you know, and it just says a lot about what's available, you know, I mean, a couple of things are coming to mind or what's available so far, you know, part of what I'm excited to talk about is I'm trying to offer this alternative, but there was a 2004 study that revealed that, um, and the Boston Globe reports on this in one of their investigations, that only six to 10% of young people who go through these kind of abuse situations tell anybody who can do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if that would have counted my friend or not, right? We tried to do what we could as 16 year right. And Jeff, I really appreciate that you're able to say like, it doesn't fall on the 16 year old to know because of course you don't have perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's where... Um, if I can speak to it briefly, you know, that or start talking about it with the amends project, you know, the mission is to mend the loophole that is allowed for the cover-up of child abuse at independent schools. And I can talk later about what that co- that loophole is, mm-hmm. but then the action is implementing the justice core initiative. So I pieced together this whole oversight and transparency model. And just hearing you say that Chloe gives me this like, yes, this is why we need this. You know, part of this three year model and program is that, there's this group of non-affiliated adults that volunteer to receive and track reports of abuse. And it's an intentionally diverse group, you know, women, different ethnicities and sexual orientations. So you've got a representation of the student body. Mm-hmm. And so they cut the way it's designed is that there's an assembly at the beginning of the year where these 
Justice Corps members, and the Corps is the committee to oversee the rights and protections of students, right, the acronym. But there's this assembly where you meet these people who are there to serve the school and the young people, and it's, it's learn your rights time, you know, and learn the process. I think that's huge. You know, I really, I appreciate that you could speak to, like, you do, once you've been through a hard thing, people are very unlikely to want to be in this out-of-control response of the play, right. you know, right. And that that isn't, that isn't, you know, one, we know young people aren't going there. And then you have to kind of acknowledge the disproportionate response to justice in the police system. I mean, unfortunately, as of yet, depending on who you are and the color of your skin and maybe even how much your parents make or don't make, depending on how small the town is, you know, Mm -hmm. it hasn't shown itself to be consistently reliable as a place for people to go to get what they need. Um, so yeah, as I, as I hear you say that, I get a, I get more excited again about this initiative that I'm working to implement. Because if you can imagine, right, like this group comes in and like, right, in no universe of awareness would I have known what to do with that. Like it didn't occur to me until late into my 20s or 30s to even try to sue the school. You know, and there there are other reasons in my story for that. Like I was still incredibly worried about the kids who were still coming in, and there was a child molester, right? right? But yeah, I just, I admire the, the wisdom with which you speak about your experience, and it really affirms the need that the Justice Corps, you know, seeks yeah. to have. So, so Van- Vanessa, um, wh- why, why don't we jump to um, what you did about it? Uh, a Boston Globe spotlight, what, uh, what you chose to pursue as uh, avenues of recourse, um, is that how difficult was that to do? Um, and do you consider it to have been successful, frightening? Did you feel alone? Did you feel somehow empowered? It's one of these multiple part questions. Yeah, well, I think you're speaking to these the pieces in the story that need to mm-hmm. come out now is like, so I actually see it as waves of reckoning. You know, mm-hmm. I'm 16 and there's one wave of reckoning. We confront the guy. Yeah, what ha- happened next was the more impactful experience. But, you know, I run away from home because I'm rightly disenchanted by all that I've seen. You know, if this is the adult world, then forget mm-hmm. this. And so I run off to the West Coast. And like I said, I'm still really concerned, right? Because what I realized, like my sister graduates, my friend graduates, Anyone who was there when some noise was made was gone, and there's still mm-hmm. a child molester living on campus. So for seven years, from 94 to 2001, I basically, you know, annually was in the headmaster's office as I'm growing up into a young woman of Chloe's age, um, you know, sending letters from the West Coast to Steve Holland saying, like, we need to do something about this. Kids aren't safe. And he, you know, continually fed me kind of, oh, we'll see, and, you know, nothing of substance. So what was interesting is um, 2001, I'm 23, and you know, I, I did end up going back and graduating, which is kind of its own story, which almost was more painful than any other piece. But because I had actually graduated from that school, um, I got an alumni publication, right? So they found me way out in rural California to say, like, here's what the school's doing, and please give us money. 
And it also had something where it said, we're going to ask, I can feel my heart starting to race. Like I can remember the fight that kicked in for me, you know, where they said, um, we're going to ask alumni for their input on the school. And I was like, oh, I've got things to say, you know, so I, <laughs> um, so to make it a more succinct, you know, so I go down and I call Steve Hahn. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to go up to the Boston Globe. I'm going to the Little Sun you, you're not doing anything, you know, like it was kind of, I needed to get to that point, right? Like I thought going to the highest door and kind of banging on it, it was all I could think to do as like a 16, 17, you know, and then, um, so some phone calls back and forth and I talked about coming and speaking at the school. So ultimately that was what they chose, right? In lieu of me going public. So in 2001, I, um, drove across the country again and I was going to give that speech Stepan called my home because he wanted to, quote, talk about content, but I was already on my way and that was the days before cell phones. So, you know, I'm coming and I'm going to talk and they can't try to pressure me into what I can and cannot say. Um, and so while I'm driving across the country, my partner at the time, you know, who's taking the phone calls, um, reports that they finally let the man go. And so what's really interesting, right, so I get that news days my heart is thumping it's interesting is, is, is this while you're on the drive cross country yeah. wow wow now that that that's a cinematic moment right if, if yeah. oh my gosh and you know and the, i kind of opened the book with like a quick insight i remember being in a motel room the night before you know i'd driven all the way from california and i got myself mm. a motel room and I'm, yeah and really like the thrill of that's what it took you know like I'm 23 and I'm trying everything I can think of to do what I observe and understand to be the right thing. So, and so, we, so it's almost a, a full decade past your, 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 when you've reported it. Seven years. Wow. You know, what's interesting too, I learned, because the third wave comes in 2016 when the globe really just releases their spotlight investigation. Wait, wait, don't, wait, don't go there yet. First, yeah. for, okay, first. Did you give that speech at the school? Mm -hmm. What's what I'm thrilled to be able to share. We're almost ready to release the audio book. And I, so I used a little, like a, a mini cassette recorder with the mini cassettes. It's like all the way. It's like historical. <laughs> so I would record my thoughts as I drove. And then at night I would write, make my speech. I recorded that speech. So I push record and I put it on the podium. In my audiobook, I have that live audio of me giving that 20 minute speech. Wow. Um, yeah, it's amazing to revisit it, you know, and mm -hmm. luckily the recording engineer did what he could to improve the quality of it. <laughs> um, so I, I definitely did give that speech. Um, the whole school was gathered, and uh, it was December 10th, 2001. And um, yeah, and I remember even as I, you know, slipped in the back door right on time from my cross country trip. Steve Hahn even still tried to approach me to encourage me what to say or not say. And I thought, how could you even entertain the thought that I would be loyal to your comfort after everything, you know? And um, I feel proud of how I composed myself for that, you know, and it was really an opportunity to share a story and insights about that story and, and speak to the young people who may have been going through things so yeah i mean really that's what it took and i guess i was going to say what was intriguing to discover is that um never in those seven years of like trying to recover from that and running away from home and still being committed to making sure kids were mm -hmm. safe 
not once did I think, I'm going to sue the school for the damages. And right about the time I was pulling into the, you know, auditorium parking lot um, was when the statute of limitations expired to sue the school for handling, which is just wild if you think about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, as far as like holding to account, you know. Um, anyway, it's the so, stuff. So how, how was your talk received by the students and by the school? Very well. I mean, <laughs> in the I, mean, I, mean, I mean, was this standing ovation by students moment? Like, like people connected with it. They understood. Maybe some of them had been, had been yeah. hurt by this man or by other people in their lives. Yeah. A couple of things stand out in my memory. Um, so when Stephen, when Steve Hahn and I had agreed to, that I would come, part of the deal was he could talk after me. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, you know, I finish and the applause starts and then, um, he keeps trying to approach the podium, but then every time he steps toward it, like the applause gets louder. So he has to like stumble back. And I just remember the, I remember the audience didn't want to let him speak. And it's funny, I haven't thought about this in a long time, just the conversation is reminding me, but I remember having a little inner moment of, um, so that's what silencing feels like, Steve. I can't write this stuff down fast enough. Oh, <laughs> well, it's in the book, luckily. <laughs> <laughs> of course, by the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so so what, what, ha- what happened... Um, what what happened after? Did you feel a sense of closure? Did you did you feel like you'd gotten what you wanted? I mean, I want to go back to what Chloe was talking about yeah. earlier. Did did um did you have a sense of of just of justice vindication at that moment? Well, I guess I'm I'm a little distracted <laughs> with my thoughts, and that I want to say two more things about it. And yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Is um. Right. So they wouldn't let Steve Hahn speak. And then people lined up to shake my hand. And then um, people did approach. A couple of students, you know, approached me in the hub and were like, started telling me stories right off, you know, right there. So that was like some immediate impact. Um, Mm -hmm. What I felt, you know, this is part of my thing with the school is that I carried their burden for years. That was not my burden to bear. Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so when I, when I got the news that he was off campus, that actually was a huge moment of success, you know, cause my, you know, and there were probably layers of what I ultimately wanted, but all I could think was like, I know about, I and mean, I still feel the alarm and I'm like 42 years old, <laughs> but I remember thinking like, I know about this. And if another student wanders in there, like I felt complicit, you know? And so my immediate goal was like prevent this man from harming more students because he's basically been emboldened, you know, so that alarm. So when I got the news that he had been let go on permanent long-term disability, which means they gave him health insurance for life. Um, that was like, that was accomplishment number one, you know? And then for myself, again, I mean, you know, I, I remember it like the punk ass in me, but I did have that like, oh, Steve, this is what silencing feels like is because they're so relieved to hear the truth. I mean, I don't know if that's vindication, but it's, it's the power of the truth before us. And that was satisfying. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's interesting because I write about it in the book, um, 
having all those teachers line up to shake my hand was, it gave me something significant. And, the, you know, and a lot of them said, I had no idea this was going on. And then my, I remember my brother's girlfriend, we were kind of reflecting on it. And she was saying, um, you know, that was probably a political move. Like they wanted to look like they were on the right side of the issue. And I think back on it and it's, it's likely that some of the people in that line did know, you know, yeah. I don't want that to be true, but I have to acknowledge that, you know, probably some people lined up because they thought like, whoop, the school messed up pretty big and Vanessa's laying it all out for us. And I want people to know I'm in support of, you know, but some of them may have known that they were taking my financial aid away and didn't speak up. And I can't know for sure, but it's a perspective we have to keep in mind when we're looking at like healing the bigger systemic problem. So hopefully well, that's easier. Well, <laughs> but we, we know that people are motivated by whatever they're motivated by. It's, it's, you can't lump anybody together in this, in, in this big generalization. Of course. And as for me, um, my, my visceral reaction there was, um, that no matter what, I there would have been, if I were a teacher there, there would have been a combination of uh, of peer pressure, and um, wh- whether or not I knew about it or part of it or whatever, the 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 absolute right thing to do in that moment was to line up to shake your hand, mm-hmm. and there could be a lot of stuff going on. That's very fair and true. You know, a lot of stuff going on, but you don't want to be the one teacher in the back of the room not shaking Vanessa's hand. That mm-hmm. that would be pretty ugly. Right. So uh, right. L- l- let me jump to Chloe for a second, because one, one of the um, ways that Chloe came to work for us is that she had written a very uh, pointed letter to her um, prep school. Um, about uh, racial injustice, um, and um, and really systemic issues that that derive from it, right. um, and whether or not the school was doing enough to um, to support the various stakeholders. I guess the school was one of the stakeholders, but right. to, to support the stakeholders. So, Chloe, how how is this resonating with you now? Because you've now gone back to your school and asked them to do the right things. Right. Yeah. Um, it's having that separation from being within that institution and being able to look at it from a different perspective. Now that I'm older, I know more about systematic injustices and how to combat these things. Um, looking at it from like an outsider perspective, it's kind of like what Vanessa was saying. Like there, there are so many missed opportunities for these schools to be held accountable and to establish that trust. I think a big part of it is not wanting to look bad. I mean, my, my prep school had a Dean of students who was molesting boys and you can't find anything on the internet talking about it and this is this is way before my time but it was something that was brought to my attention um by a teacher there while i was there and 
lo and behold, all of us go back to the dorm and try to find something on it and nothing's there. And it makes you wonder, of course, that's a bad look for the school, no matter what, but that should be out there for people to see, to see how you handled that. And that, that's what I'm interested in. And I think that's what the majority of people are interested in. How do you handle a situation like that? It's, there's so many processes that can go into preventing something like that from happening, but it's not foolproof. You need to have a plan in place on how to handle that transparently and appropriately. Um, and, you know, I think back to just being a freshman at the school and all four years, the whole school knew that there was a female faculty member who would have sex with male students. And that was like a total cultural norm that I kind of just, the whole school kind of just accepted for four years. And after I left, um, conveniently after the 2016 uh, Spotlight article, which is the year I graduated, and I remember that moment very distinctly, the year after that, she was let go. And as far as I know, she's at another school. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of, of the, the, I was saying this to Vanessa the other day, we were talking, it reminds me a lot of the Catholic church and how the Catholic church historically, if they have a bad actor, they will just move him to another place. And that's kind of how teachers work too. And um, teachers are more likely to abuse children just because they have more access. That's a well-researched thing. Um, and there's not as much attention drawn to it because I guess it's not as sensationalized or I don't know. I think people put a lot of trust into these institutions when we should be looking at them critically and making sure that they are a safe place and making sure that there's processes set up to make things right when things go wrong. So be before we kind of jump to the spotlight article, because um, that's probably the next big uh, stake in the ground here. Chloe, Chloe, I just want to point out that even in you're a, a women's studies major graduate. Ecology major. Oh, sorry. Gender studies minor. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're always lecturing me about the women's studies. <laughs> so, so, but even in your conversation just now and what you just said, you used the term um, accountability and, and looking at them critically. Hmm. And even in your conversation, it has kind of a pejorative connotation and that's what we're trying to pull apart here mm. because if the accountability is love, mm. sounds very Buddhist, doesn't it? Accountability is love. Mm. Um, yes, we want, we want to look at them critically because looking at something critically is actually um, a function of, of interest and trust and, and the ability to, to find deeper meaning, right. right? Right. Critical analysis isn't criticism. It's right. I, 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 this is, I'll, I'll stop after making this brief point, but I think it's one of the greatest ironies in the world that an institution that quite literally teaches you to think critically will be like, don't think critically about us though. Everything else go for it. Us off the table. 
Mm. Well, I have, I have to echo what you're both <laughs> pointing to, and I'm so relieved that you're, you're going there. It's like part of what concerns me is that because the whole context is teaching, like when you look at the public statements that just flat out deny and, you know, common sense thinking people recognize they're hiding the truth, that's a teaching moment. And that's mm. a tragedy of it. And then Jeff, when you're talking about accountability is love, I'm also, you were starting to remind me of like the heart of mentorship, which is like, I expect more from you, you know, like holding someone, this, you know, holding someone to a standard is that I know you can do better. You know, I think right. that these schools is that like, for whatever unfortunate set of circumstances, the default was fear, lockdown, silence, you know, hide that all crumbled and now we're looking at it and I think the opportunity before us is like you know what let's let's have you live up let's have the these teachers become role models of how do you handle when you find a weak spot or you make a mistake right like there's so much there that can still be in that context of like you know you you can do better than this Mm -hmm. you know I think that's the underlying heart of it is that it's not about running and hiding and pretending like that's not helping anybody. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jeff, I think that that's part of the beauty I understand of your journey and your work is that it seems to confirm my sense that hiding and pretending and dodging these things hurts the person doing the hiding. Like it may feel like momentary relief, right? But I don't think right. it's helping. So anyway, I think there, there can be this like, let them, let them, be role models and how to handle it. And let's, mm. let's all now hold them to a higher standard. Well, I, 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 I promise you we'll, we'll, we'll pull back and, and draw some, some general themes here at the end uh, without getting too cosmic, hope, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But um, let, let, let's stay focused on, on, on your journey because we're, now we're at the point where um, You've uh, you come to the attention of the Boston Globe and and their and their spotlight team. So how does that happen? Yeah. Well, um, and did you have anything more you were going to say about that, Chloe, or were you ready to? No, I. Okay. I just remember that being a huge conversation because you know all boarding schools are connected in one way or another, and it just made the whole campus kind of have this heightened awareness for like one of the first times that I could ever remember. And ever since then, that awareness has only grown and grown and grown, but I I will never forget that just being like, we can talk about this now. Like it's here and it's tangible and we can talk about it, especially for me, like just after years and years of being so fearful of talking about anything, even though my abuse wasn't, you know, necessarily institutionalized. I, you know, I, I, I was talking to you about this the other day. Like I think back and wonder what if that first time when the guy was still enrolled at the school, what if I did say that something had happened? Like what would have the school done there when the school responded as well as they could have when he was graduated, when I finally did admit it, there was no skin off their back because he's not their responsibility anymore. You know, I, I always think about that and that's that context is really important to me because of they reacted the way I wanted them to because he wasn't their responsibility. So that was a little side note, but I, I was on a school board for six years mm-hmm. in a public school system. And we had a very, um, what, what's, what's the right word? 
we had a very charismatic um, alpha-ish superintendent. He'd been, uh, he was a lifer. He had been there for 25 years or so. And he really knew that school district as well as what school, what the culture was in the, in the, uh, in the hierarchy of the school. And a problem would come to his attention. And um, the first question he would ask is, when do their kids graduate? Because just like you were saying, Chloe, the, the problem only exists so long as the kids are still in the school, as far as he exactly. was concerned. Right. As, as far as he was concerned, there's, there's nothing we need to do so long as those kids are not in the school anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, let, 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 let's make the jump because I don't, I don't want to start getting okay. into that too much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So 2016, the Boston Globe Spotlight Investigation. Um, the way that reached me out in Washington State is that um, I had just made a trip to New England for the first time in many years and um, saw some old high school friends. It would have probably reached me regardless. My friend who stood beside me while we confronted the child molester sent me an article link in an email one day. Lawrence Academy asks sex misconduct victims to come forward. And honestly, my first thought was like, that's funny. I've been coming forward since 1994. You know, and I recognize that administrations have turned over, right? Steve Hahn resigned the year after I gave the speech, you know, kind of in, let's just name the classic pattern here, like, zero anything said about you know his poor choices and so i'll leave that but anyway 2016 i get that article and uh yeah it totally re-energized me so i'm doing research you know in the globe hadn't done any looking at lawrence academy of groton and um talking to reporters they direct me to attorney mitchell garabedian and um so i had to decide if i was going to he was willing to take the case. He saw enough there, even though, so the statute hadn't expired to sue the perpetrator. Um, you know, and, and like, I really appreciated, Chloe, what you were speaking to about, so there's a delay in these processes, you know, like I had been so, it was kind of an adrenaline override for those first seven years. Like I had a mission. I had to keep those kids safe, you know, mm. and that rattled me, right? But once that was achieved, right, once that, um, then I, you know, my body suffered, right? Like surgery after surgery. Mm. And I kept running away because, you know, I had been kind of in this fight and flight thing. So, okay, let me try to be succinct with the story. I retained Mitchell Garabedian to represent me in a case. What I learned is that at no point in the process will they acknowledge the cover-up. That that's not going to be part of it. I always, to me, what was poignant was his associate, you know, and it's fun for me to like connect with East Coasters again, the whole like, <laughs> but I just remember that his associate, whose name I actually don't recall, um, we were, he would do most of the collaborating, corresponding by phone. And um, one day he said, you know, no offense, you sound really together and that's going to make it a tough sell as a case. You know? mm. And um, I remember thinking my resilience should not be a detriment to this, you know? I mean, to right. me, like every way I was looking at the situation, the legal lens never lined up. Mm-hmm. Like the way I looked at it was like, we need to admit not what this guy long gone did. He's long gone. We need to admit the response, which failed not only me horribly, but everybody who knew me, you mm-hmm. know, those ripples. So anyway, the long process of what unfolds there 
Garabedian sends a demand letter to Lawrence Academy for $2 million in settlement. And there's backstory to that demand letter as well. And then, um, you know, and he and I had an exchange. I realized there will be no honesty. They're going to try to make me look as damaged as possible beyond what I thought was true or accurate. I've suffered, you know, I mean, everybody suffered in ways, something. So anyway, through a number of circumstances, I decide that I can't proceed on that road. And part of, so we're talking about the amends project, you know, like when I was trying to make that decision, do I want to get a big attorney and sue the school now? Like, I remember, you know, like I had these long range goals and that's when I set a prize and I didn't know like if that was going to do it, you know, and I had a, a really clear sense of what doing it, what would it, you know, the results I wanted. But then when I set the private intention, I thought, okay, I will take on Mitchell Garabedian and lawsuits and the whole deal if this makes amends, you know, so this is the amends project. And that was my private intention with myself. And every time I'd get to one of these junctures of what do I do now, I'd have to check in with that intention. And it didn't, given what we could and couldn't achieve legally, money aside, um, I couldn't proceed. And so I let him go. And we agreed it wasn't a fit. But you, you had to know either from the outset or pretty soon after that, what, um, what would drive an attorney to take the case was mm. money. Mm. Was that, uh, that's not to say that there aren't attorneys who are valiant civil liberties attorneys. As a former attorney. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm not saying that. But yeah. what I'm saying is that in this particular case, the only redress, the only recourse that that they could get to you is money, right. and right. and therefore they're motivated by whatever their percentage of that is, and they're going to navigate to get to that as quickly, as much, and as quickly as they possibly could, and 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 that's not a bad thing. That's what their job is, right. but. There has to be an alignment between that and your goals. Right. Yeah, I appreciate you, re, you know, kind of reiterating or reframing that. And that's, that's true, you know, that he'd, able to, he'd been able to get a certain kind of result on a certain path. Mm -hmm. and, and when I checked in with myself ethically, I couldn't proceed on that path. You see, um, this, is, this is the part of your story, excuse me, one of the parts of your story that I really relate to. Because I was um, written prescriptions by a, uh, a medical professional friend of mine for 10 years. So he was more than an enabler of my, of my, um, of my substance abuse. Legally, he would have been held to task. And um, after the fact, I went to a lawyer. And to try to find out what my uh, options were. And of course, the lawyers were very excited because I had all of the paperwork and I, I knew how to put a, a file together. And um, when I discussed it within the context of my recovery with my sponsor and other people in recovery, what I realized was that my family had been in, in tatters. My life and my family had been tatters. And if I pursued this, then 
his family would be in tatters and he would have lost potentially his medical license and he he would his family would be suffering the same way that my family was suffering and i couldn't do that and and not because i had so much of a of a uh, um uh that it was antithetical to me that he would be hurt that was important and I didn't want to hurt him and his family. But what I thought is that it would hurt my ability to recover. Whatever goodness and whatever God's grace was going to be upon my, 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 my life and my family, then getting this money wasn't going to, solve, wasn't going to make that better. Wow. You know, I needed to, and, 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 and at, the, at the time, I really needed the money. I was, <laughs> I was going to prison. I, you know, I, th there was no way for me to make that kind of money, but I had to, I had to, I had to trust God. I had to trust, have faith that there's bigger, better things in store for me and, and tearing down this family or, or, or perpetrating that against him, um, um, wouldn't work. So I, I'm, this is resonating so heavily for me. Yeah, I appreciate that. Can I, may I ask, would you say at that point you valued the process, your process of recovery more than any potential reward? More than anything. Yes. More than anything in the world. Because if I hadn't recovered, what good could I be to my children? What good could yeah. I be to the universe? I feel that. Yeah, and I appreciate hearing that story. And then there's something for me when you tell it about like, awareness and i think this is a responsibility thing i'm not saying this is your thought this is what comes up for me is um a willingness to consider what damage will be what will the damages be by this path right mm -hmm. like what will be harmed along the way you know like one of the core tenets in the amends project is like things number one no further exploitation will be allowed on the way toward resolution right like if we bring more damage under the guise of healing something it deserves a second look it's like is that the path of healing and I, i'm remembering too that um a moment for me when i was talking to mitchell garabedian and respect to what the man accomplished you know i still hold respect for he came a great ways you know my main point is like it's time for a new way um <clears throat> but i remember as i was speaking to him he said you know it's evil what they did and i remember i recoiled from that you know is that What's become important to me is that I'm, I don't want to walk a path of demonizing anybody, you know? And I think, again, that's part of what I really value in connecting with you is that like on the other side of enduring harm and on the other side of harming is still a whole human being. And if we lose sight of that, it's just more and more fractures, you know? And so I just remember, you know, I write about that in the book too. And it, you know, I mean, people try to bond and connect and, make loyalty in various ways but i thought like well that's not gonna anyway there was something in that mindset what was did you consider when you were making this the decision to not go forward with the lawsuit, uh, yeah. with the lawsuit did it did, did it uh, what was a part of your decision making process that you would be disappointing your lawyer <laughs> never occurred to <laughs> 
no, that might be a good thing. But, <laughs> but but your lawyer put in hundreds of hours worth of work, and they weren't going to see. Yeah. Um, th- th- they weren't going to see their the reward for for their. You weren't paying them by the hour. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I giggle because like never occurred to me. You know? and, um, well, and I also question like we were fairly early in the process, right? Like the, the way he framed it to me is that the demand letter kind of gets their attention and starts the, the ball rolling. I don't know how much time. And I mean, what I did know back then was that and I'm aware of his career, you know, like it, he was so busy. He was so swamped with work, you know, so I guess it never did cross my mind. Um, and, you know, that was, as, that was as long as it took to uncover the mismatch of, of principles, right? Like, had I, con- had I, I think the only place I might have carried regret is if I knew that and I tried to see, you know, like, as soon as I recognized, like, oh, we're not approaching this from the way that I need to, mm-hmm. I spoke up right away, you know? And so, yeah, interesting. I mean, it's, it's not for lack of caring, but I think... You see what what I find fascinating here. It actually is kind of a practice point for any for anybody going through a criminal justice issue or a right. white collar justice issue. This is a practice point. This pay attention to this one, <laughs> right? That the fiduciaries have a duty to you. Mm-hmm. You don't have a duty to the refu- to the fiduciaries. And the thing is, is that. There are so many people who get so far down the line in a process that they think that they can't make another decision. Oh, I bet. Right? This is not working, but I've already invested fifty or a hundred thousand dollars. These people know my case. These people, but if there's a misalignment mm-hmm. and you're not feeling like you're being taken care of the way that's authentic to you you can make another decision and whatever that, whatever that looks like. Cause I'm, uh, it could mean going, uh, getting second opinions by other lawyers. It could mean a lot of things, but you're, you're the client. You're the person who has to only your welfare should be, is, should be con- concerned of the entire construct. Mm, that's so refreshing to hear you say that. And, you know, I think for whatever reason, I didn't lose sight of like, well, he is after all working for me. <laughs> and, you know, to, you're reminding me as well that it wasn't an instantaneous give up on him as representative. When I, you know, because I, the whole restorative justice option reemerged, you know, in that mm-hmm. And I brought that to, to Mitchell Garabedian. I said, you know, I, about, I need them to acknowledge what happened, you know, and and I said, I'd like to do restorative justice. And are you familiar with that? You know, and he wasn't willing to go that route. And so really, it was just, it was a crossroads of like, here's what I want to achieve. But yeah, it's very refreshing to hear you put that focus back on where that, right, where it needs to be. So thank you. <laughs> so, so tell us about your relationship with um, Boston Globe and the Spotlight Reporters. And, mm-hmm. and, and because, because this whole issue blows up it becomes everywhere it becomes like group textable in every family did you see this did you see that it's shooting around because I, I was part of that my my um my stepdaughter's 
one of Chloe's best friends. And so they were all like, oh, like what's going on? Where? Um, what was that? What was that, Chloe? What was that? Um, that school text, not TikTok. It was Rick Rack or Yak. Huh? What was it? Yik Yak. Yik Yak. It was it was shooting all over Yik Yak. Right. I can't believe I remember that. But so what? What was going on with the Boston Globe and the reporting and all, all this thing getting a lot of attention? And what was your part in that? It for me, you right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So really, the Boston Globe for me was just a starting off point, right? I called and spoke to a reporter, and then I was with Mitchell Garabedian, and then I wasn't, right? <laughs> and then I had to kind of forge a new path. That's really where my engagement with the Boston Globe ended. What what did happen was, and I want to be efficient, you know, because it's a long story. Um, I attempted restorative justice with the school. We had a time and a date set, and they actually canceled it while I was on the plane from Seattle. So let me just say that again. <laughs> as far as, like, respecting me and my, like, hey, let's do this in a higher way, we had an agreement. <laughs> I'm on the plane. And I get to Massachusetts and they leave me a, a letter. I think I'm just, I'm still stunned by that. You know, that I approach them saying, hey, I'd like to do this on a higher road. You know, I'd like, I'd like to do this in a way that doesn't cause more damage. And I, and as I'm flying across the country to meet them for an agreed upon process, they cancel it. Anyway, what, 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 what was the agreement? So, and then, and to be fair, there was a, a, a component. So the agreement, I had found a gentleman named Sarom Fong. He worked in Seattle and in Boston doing restorative justice. And I just thought, oh, this is, this is the person, you know, and he did all this great work. I was speaking of like responsibility to the person who does the work. He wrote, he contacted school officials. He wrote up, um, you know, agreements for us and, and outlined a process. And then, um, you know, he had a scheduling conflict come up last minute. But I was really clear, like, it was incredibly hard for me to leave my life to drive across, to fly across the country at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had to have everyone's agreement for these certain dates. But the agreement was we would do, what is it, you know, two and a half days of restorative justice process. Um, and everybody in the field understands that, you know, it takes that long to, to get somewhere with these things. So to be fair and transparent, you know, I'm still put off by their choice to cancel it. Just to give the whole story, um, Sarome had the scheduling conflict, you know, and I said, look, I, I still have to stick to this date, you know, and he's like, oh, is there any way? And, you know, school officials like, oh, it's just delay. And I remember thinking like, oh, that reminds me of, you know, the child molester will retire eventually. <laughs> I just, I wasn't willing to like lose the cohesion. So I said, look, we have all the framework. We've got, you know, it all laid out. So I'm going to, I'm coming and we'll just take the structure that Sarome created and we'll do it. And they, they both acknowledged that, you know, the attorney head of school. Um, so there was that piece. So when I landed in Boston, you know, read the letter. Um, then I, I hustled to find some facilitators. And we had an abbreviated process, like half a day. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, the, the, I guess to, to try to answer your question, too, as far as the press. Um, even through that whole process, which you know, in itself was very, there's just a lot of disrespect in the handling there. Um, 
it doesn't repair trust, you know, to, to handle it the way they did. So after all that, they offered me 1% of Mitchell Garabedian's demand, but only if I was quiet about it, which inspired a big old, you know, you know what? No, on my part. And, um, well, it's just the part where you, um, where you warned us in advance that you uh, might use expletives. I'm trying to keep it back. <laughs> yeah, I know. My, I know that when I get worked up, it, I was telling Chloe, it's kind of like my accent, right? Like I don't quite have <laughs> accent that comes out when I'm mad, but when I'm worked up, mm. yeah, it goes lingo. <laughs> my roots start showing, you know. <laughs> right. I'll do my best. So yeah, you know, one percent, but don't tell anybody. Hell no. Um, <laughs> So, um, you know, and then there was, so the intersection with the press was that then, yeah, you know, and this was kind of in the consciousness at the time, but I just decided it became clear to me that these kinds of abuses, specifically institutional silencing and bullying, you know, those thrive in silence. And, you know, I believe that, that, you know, these institutions have been able to procure that silence because they have something people want. They have nothing for me, you know, like I want to see recovery. I want to see healing. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, the Lowell Sun picked up the story. So a reporter there, you know, did a feature article and that came out in May of 28, right? May of 2018. So then, yeah, the one reporter and I, you know, stayed engaged as I continued to do what I could to, to encourage them to tell the truth. You know, and Jeff, you asked earlier if I, if I had a personal hashtag, it did come to mind. And I think if I have a personal hashtag, maybe in my life as well, but definitely in this effort, it's that truth heals. That's, that's the way, you know, mm -hmm. and we're, we're yeah. using, we're using that one. Just for anyone, anyone listening in, we were trying to figure out what hashtags would work for this. And, Truth heals is definitely it. Mm -hmm. Oh my lord! Oh my yeah. lord! So, did you have any idea? And because I'm going to jump to Chloe here, did you have any idea that you were becoming a folk hero to um, uh, to an entire class of 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 people who didn't have a voice? Did, did you know that was happening? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm... <laughs> part of me is like, hero. There was one moment where a classmate used that word, hero. And I think what she's really speaking to is like the immense relief at knowing the possible, right? Like when she discovered the feature article, I had a very profound reaction to it, right? She'd endured something at the school. And I remember she... So I was telling both of you, you know, I'm, I'm very new and foreign to social media, right? LinkedIn in 2018, Twitter a couple weeks ago. So back in 2018, um, former classmates would send me screenshots was kind of how I got insight into this. And she'd been making posts, you know, that she, she just seemed to have a lot of gratitude. She was a little bit amazed that I was doing what I was doing without comments, meaning like, it's one thing to make a post and get a lot of kind of electronic positive feedback, but that I'd done what I was doing, you know, with nobody reflecting that back to me. 
I mean, it was me and my conscience and we have a deal, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a point in 2018 when she was talking about like, I, you know, I never knew what it felt like to have a hero. And now I do, you know, and that's humbling. And, you know, I'm also human and imperfect and (laughs) had to kind of stumble as I went. I think what I, I do recognize or what I have recognized is every time I was part of bringing a reckoning, people found me to say thanks, you know, and, mm-hmm. and in that, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's huge, you know, and I think, I do think that's probably the, what I'm learning, you know, I was just doing that interview about, I did a, a book that sparks a movement interview, and um, I think when we dare to speak the previously unspeakable, that frees people, right, it's that idea mm-hmm. of, um, oh, that's possible, you know, it's almost like what you were saying, Chloe, about like, wait, we can talk about this, you know, and say that with the Justice Corps, like, once you empower kids to say, like, here's how this goes, and here's what you do, that kids will be like, wait, we can, you know, it's like, giving that permission is part of, yeah, that's part of the gift, I think, Mm -hmm. and it's a gift for me, you know, because I get, I've, I've, born, I have born witness, (laughs) I've bared witness to a lot of pain, you know, people bring that to me. And even holding that as an honor of sorts, I have to, you know, be careful of my own emotional energy and time and everything. But mm-hmm. the flip side of that gift is that I get to see the liberation. Too, mm-hmm. You know, is that then when I, yeah, and it's, and people do beautiful things with that right away. You know? And so, yeah, yeah I, there's more I can say, but there have been waves, you know, every time I was part of bringing a reckoning, there was the thank you. And that's so moving. You know, that's, yeah, so that's huge. So, Chloe, so Chloe um, I'm, I'm just intuiting that a part of you is probably amazed and freaking out and, and just thinking, like, not that many months ago, you're sitting in a classroom reading about this kind of stuff, and then here it is. This is the real deal. I mean, this is... Mm-hmm. You know, there, there. It's no more. Um, this isn't the case study. This is, you know, you get to meet Vanessa in the flesh. This is the real right. deal. So, what's your visceral reaction to all of this? And can you like take us from where you were when you were reading about this stuff um, online to like right now? What's your, what, what you know? What's the um, trajectory look like? Right. Yeah. Like, I think you nailed it. I, I am shocked and awed that this is a real thing. Like I I've spent a good part of the past four years engaging on, on campus, um, you know, violence prevention and reading about feminist theory and restorative justice. And, you know, that it's a great concept and it's one that gets you excited because it's finally kind of like, uh, a common discourse among people, at least for the people I associate myself with. I I hope it extrapolates to the rest of the world, but um, just seeing the amends project and like something concrete tackling restorative justice and making it its driving force is amazing to me. Like I, I was talking to you about this the other day, Vanessa, like I think that survivors sexual assault have a very different concept of justice than a lot of other people and that's a very big overstatement everyone's concept of justice really depends on their experience and 
you know, their perception of what would be meaningful for them to most heal. But I think because it's the system is not set up to support survivors of sexual assault. And that is something clear from whether you're a survivor yourself or you're not. That's, I think there's really no argument there. Um, and just having that lived experience of being a survivor really makes you think about what justice is and you yourself have been harmed. And a lot of people that at least I have conversed with who have similar experiences to me don't want to perpetuate that harm. Like it does, it never did anything for me to envision the person who raped me locked up. That doesn't really do anything for me. I it, it it stops the what if this is happening with other people, but how is that going to make, that's not the end of the story for me. You know, that's, that wasn't even the beginning of it. It was more about how do I hold someone accountable and actually hash this out? You know, like it's, it's not so black and white where it's a perpetrator and a victim. I'm interested in, how you know the underbelly of that like uh, this stuff doesn't happen in isolation like you said like there's a story behind that person and most likely that person has been harmed too like it's stopping the cycle of violence and i think incarceration contributes to the cycle of violence i don't think it's the solution at all um it's it's taking a different look i think we get so trapped in this is our justice system. This is how it works and it works. And this is what justice is. I think it's taking a step back from that and saying, what is justice really? What is justice to me? And how does that function in reality? Theory is real, you know, like theory isn't something that just lives in our heads. We can apply it and it happens day to day. So it's really awesome to see that in your face in concretely with the amends project. I think it's well overdue and it's you are here for doing this and taking this on and putting yourself out there. Mm. There's no question about that. So um, as we're winding up this uh, conversation, which I have to tell you, it's one of the most meaningful of my life. So uh, that I don't engage in platitudes. So, uh, um, and I, I, and I certainly didn't want to bury the lead to, um, an hour and a half into a conversation, but it feels obvious that Chloe would consider you a hero. It's much less obvious or maybe inobvious that I would consider you a hero because I represent the people of power, people in power. I re I'm, um, I'm a white male, and in this country that imbues me with a certain amount of of assumed credibility, power, access to resources, um, and I've been guilty of abusing that power in my life. Um, and so, while I wouldn't say that the overriding issue in my life is trying to make amends for abusing that power. Um, the, the very real look at it as to uh, the unintended, unintended consequences of my behavior is astounding 
because uh, as I think you talked about the concentric circles earlier of, of, of harm, um, we have the potential to harm a lot of people in our wake. We also have the potential to heal a lot of people in our wake. And so that's why I find this to be one of the most uh, um, engaging and um, important conversations of my life because it calls me to task. And, and not just as an individual, but if, if I don't take this and spread this message to other people who have access to resources and power, then, then I, I'm, I'm a uh, co-conspirator. And so that's why I consider you a hero. So there's a big takeaway for our audience because um, most of our audience are people who have potentially done some things they're not proud of and at the same time they're they're being hurt by other people who are doing things that they may not be proud of right i mean thank you for the acknowledgement both of you and i think that you know when i hear when i hear that it gives me hope mostly because it seems to be a reflection of cultural readiness you know i think as we watch and like i think like i said when we first met you know i i consider the measure of any awakening is the kind of the, the action that comes mm -hmm. as a result, right? And this is this is where I get excited. Is like let's take that awareness and the outrage and the pain and all of the things that rose up and and direct it toward a new course. And mm -hmm. I have to say that I always come back. You know, I talk about like I said, I didn't want to do anything with demonizing. I feel very strongly about the power of humanizing, and I I'll always as much as possible default to trusting in the goodness of people that you know somebody off course is somebody off course either that's someone who's getting hurt or somebody who's hurting you know and we all need each other to hold account to like hold and be held you know mm -hmm. and so to me that's part of the, the potential of the beauty of this like to if, you know the willingness to spread that message is like let's have faith in each other that we want each other to do better and we want the relief of doing better ourselves you know like jeff i think what i'll take away is part of is the power of hearing you say like nothing mattered more than my recovery you know that spirit that human spirit that shows up and says like i'm going to heal and be a more whole and healthy functioning part of the society that's thrilling you know and i think mm. that's what i want to see spread to these systems you know it's like it's time to put these these initiatives in place that say like look the old way clearly isn't working anymore. Let's all do better. We can. You know? mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you so much for the chance to be here. And Chloe, it's been really wonderful connecting with you as well. And yeah, just knowing where you are in this story, it gives me a ton of hope too. So yeah, I'm very grateful. a lot. Thank you. You know, this is the part of the podcast where I, I usually ask uh, so, uh, our guest what are the takeaways that they want people to remember them by? But you just did it. <laughs> you beat me to it. So wh why, don't, why don't you tell everyone, um, just uh, tell everyone how they can get in contact with you and, um, and definitely pitch the book okay. so that um, people can know that um, a lot of this, uh, you managed to actually put down in writing, which is, yeah. Which is astounding, I think, because it's one mm -hmm. thing to be able to tell a story. It's another thing to be mm -hmm. able to actually 
focus it down to something that's readable. Yeah, thank you. That was this has been my pandemic blessing. So here's promoting the book ready. There it is. That's <laughs> 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 for reference. <laughs> but yeah, that's can't stop the sunrise. Adventures in healing, confronting corruption, and the journey to institutional reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to vanessaosage.com, I've got the various book buying options. Again, the audiobook should be out. I guess it might be a couple of weeks before it's truly ready, but if you look at vanessaosage.com, that's also going to be available. Mm. Um, the Amends Project is simply theamendsproject.com. We have a support the movement page. So if people are moved and they would like to contribute to seeing this initiative and this movement, you know, really get traction, I'm always grateful for supporters. We're a, a Washington state nonprofit and I'm striving to get uh, fiscal sponsorship with Tides, the nonprofit accelerator. So mm. I have to reach a certain goal. Um, I am on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> my friends are like i'll believe it when i see it the book and i are on twitter at vanessa osage at vanessa osage um, and then love and truth rising is my social enterprise where i've done you know coaching and consulting and i don't know if you all knew but i've been a sexuality educator for a decade as well and mm-hmm. it's part of my my background and the amends project is is tied to that as well so i think yeah there are ways to reach me through all of those avenues Thank you, and I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna talk about ways people can contact you, Chloe. That's that's through our website, prisonist.org, and there's all kinds of ways to reach us there, and including the um, the book excerpt article that Vanessa wrote that we just recently uh, published on the website um, called "White Male Privilege Q and A," um, which is uh, um, incredible. Um, satire um it's it's funny actually but but uh, yeah, yeah. It is, <laughs> hopefully it grabbed people um but we have it out on our uh on our email blasts and we have it on medium and a few other channels too so if you google vanessa osage you might even come up with some of our platforms and, it, and this will also be in the uh in the show notes uh when we publish this on the website so uh Chloe Coppola, Vanessa Sage, thank you for being with us. Um, this was a blessing in so many ways, and um, God be looking after you, and um, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Blessing thank you. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.